Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guests today are Lieutenant Colonel Travis Trammell and Professor Elizabeth Pate Cornell. Lieutenant Colonel Trammell just completed his dissertation at Stanford University, which offers a quantitative analysis of the risk of fake news and a model for management decisions to combat disinformation. Dr. Pate Cornell was his thesis supervisor. Her own recent research is on the use of game theory in risk analysis with applications that have included counterterrorism, nuclear proliferation, and cybersecurity. This episode gives an overview of fake news and influence campaigns that are promoted by nation states, which is to say, not homegrown here in the US, and what that kind of work hopes to achieve. We need an informed electorate for the health of the US democracy, but specifically for national security purposes, the ability for the electorate to understand factually what's happening globally and to be able to be involved appropriately to elect officials that are addressing national security's concerns based on the way in which these citizens desire. Fake news has the potential to undercut that basic foundation and the contract between the elected and those who elect them. We talk about fake news infecting and spreading like a virus, the increasing prevalence of fake news, both from foreign and domestic actors in this 2020 election cycle, as well as the dangers to democracy and national security. Let's listen in. Thank you, Travis, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Travis, you were spurred by the Russian information influence campaign, often with fake news on social media, in the 2016 presidential race, and you mapped out the growth of disinformation and targeted fake news. Your focus is on cyber risk to U.S. national security. How do you define fake news? We define fake news as news articles that are intentionally and verifiably false and could mislead readers. And I think what's key to point out there is the concept that it is designed to look like legitimate news and it is intentionally created to mislead readers. So that's really where we focused our efforts. Defining it was somewhat difficult and we still are making changes to that as we see new evidence in the fake news arena begin to populate online. Perhaps I can add something to this. There are several kinds of fake news. There's the blatantly false statements, but also there are some in a gray area statements that come from grossly truncated information or worst case and best case presented as, as certain. In a different area, mostly domestic, we have seen fake, fake news that are even uh, more uh, intriguing. Uh, what do you mean by fake, fake news? Something is perfectly true, and you could it fake news because you don't want that truth to come out. We have seen that uh, domestically, but also with some of our adversaries outside the country, whether Russian or Chinese, for example. Right. So you're labeling true news as fake news. Precisely. Why is fake news dangerous to our national security? We need an informed electorate for the health of the U.S. democracy but specifically for national security purposes, 
the ability for the electorate to understand factually what's happening globally and to be able to be involved appropriately to elect officials that are addressing national security's concerns based on the way in which these citizens desire. Fake news has the potential to undercut that basic foundation and the contract between the elected and those who elect them. Right. Elizabeth, do you have something to add? Yes, I would say that, you know, the danger of fake news for national security includes very obvious things like disparaging and demoralizing our troops and their supporters, which I think is something that we have seen. So you actually speak directly about Russian chaos strategy and perceived Russian objectives. Can you talk a little bit about that and how is fake news one of the tools? So chaos strategy basically attempts to define the idea of truth decay. The concept encapsulates fake news and disinformation as a primary means to sow chaos within a targeted population. And this can be used in concert or separate from overt action militarily or economically or covert action militarily. Crimea is a prime case study on this where there were Russian-affiliated agents uh, that were not wearing Russian uniforms that were involved in conflict in Crimea. Simultaneously, the use of information operations online to not only target individuals in Crimea for a specific objective, but also globally to populate the information environment with false information that is designed at some level to cause citizens members of democracy, the global community, to question information that they're being presented with. So in this sense, the Russians feel that they benefit when historic institutions, news organizations, strong democracies, Western governments that are historically less friendly to the Russian government, when they are at some level in chaos, it replicates some of the things we've seen in the past from the Soviet Union at the time a program called Active Measures, which was a, a propaganda arm. Some of these tactics are not new. It's just the availability of online communities and the ability to reach large communities for effectively low or no cost. And that's what we've seen in the past few years. Right. In fact, you liken it to a viral disease and you use the viral disease model to mimic the spread of fake news. Tell us a little bit about your study. So as we began to examine ways in which we can perhaps develop effective countermeasures to fake news, disinformation, and influence campaigns, we needed an effective way to model uh, the spread of fake news. The closest model that we could come up with for the way that information spreads is actually a viral model in the sense that it's a contact model. You have to be contacted with information in the same way that you do with a virus. So obviously we don't have to make physical contact, but there needs to be a link. If I'm not linked to someone or I don't visit some news site, I'm not going to receive the information in a traditional form or in a way that we see information spreading online. Our modeling has shown promise in the accuracy. And then finally, they're very tunable. We were trying to flatten the fake news curve before that term was as well known as it is today. So we, we wanted to test some similar interventions in our model and building on the legacy of infectious disease model really allowed us to do that effectively.
We share one common feature with the viral disease model, which is tensionotase in particular in the infection rate. So that's something that the model that Travis has designed is perfectly equipped to do. And then we do simulations to see if the output of the model is reasonable given the limited data set that we may have. So we leveraged a couple data sets that are out there. And I think the beauty of the model is that it is updatable. So it's not like we're wedded to an expert's opinion at the beginning of this process when that's all we have. It is still contained within the data set, but the data set is then updated as we get new information. So I think it makes it very powerful and appropriate for leverage in this case. One of the uh, things we always try to make sure of is that the experts are asked questions that are only in their field of expertise. So someone who has true expertise in one particular field, and that is what drives the quality of uh, what uh, Travis has done. So I was really fascinated by the survey you conducted to measure susceptibility. Tell us more about how that survey worked. Based on the idea of an infectious disease model and the concept of perhaps older people or people with comorbidity or pre-existing conditions, we wanted to see if that concept was replicated within fake news. Are certain people with certain features or collection of features more susceptible to fake news? The idea of the survey was to gauge someone's opinion on a particular topic or multiple topics present them with false information under the guise that it's legitimate information, and then measure how much their opinion has changed based on that false information. And then finally, at the end, we debrief them and tell them that they were presented false information, and then we ask for their opinion again. And what we're trying to do there is to see if corrected, did their opinions revert back to their original opinion, or was there some kind of residual impact from the false information that was presented. I think what was important to observe was the role of the stubborn agents, those who cannot uh, change their mind. Also, the role of influencers, people that are believed more than the others or have more connections. And finally, the uh, dependency of uh, the targets on social networks and the importance of these social networks in the spread of these fake news. Yeah, so Elizabeth, can you please explain what a stubborn agent is? Sure. The stubborn agent is one that has been programmed to keep sending the same fake news and never changing its message. And it's uh, part of a technical construction of the fake news, uh, ways of directing uh, the fake information. Some influencers are more believed than others. And I actually, I was very surprised, the influencers that you chose. Tell us a little bit more about that. The idea with the influencers that we began with at the baseline of this model was the idea that you have certain individuals who have greater connections to others online. And we wanted to examine the impact of influencers if they were promoting what was perceived to be false information. We wanted them to be recognizable, and we looked at a list of the most famous Americans. We also wanted a balance from the standpoint of the political spectrum. Obviously, we picked uh, President Trump. We picked former President Barack Obama. We had uh, Oprah Winfrey. We had Sean Hannity from the, the right side. But we also intentionally picked a couple of famous Americans 
that we didn't think people would necessarily believe they had a specific political opinion. So we picked Michael Jordan and Tom Hanks to see what impact these individuals had that didn't come with a preconceived political angle that people had associated with in the information environment. What did you discover with uh, these influencers and what was the most surprising thing for you? So we were very, very satisfied with the results. We saw different susceptibility across ages, although it didn't exactly match the initial assumption that we had. There seemed to be a slight increase in the susceptibility to fake news for individuals who claim to be online for over 10 hours a day. We thought that those people who spent very little time online in an online community were perhaps more susceptible because they didn't have multiple avenues to receive information or to verify or debunk information. But what we actually saw were those that were constantly online showed a slightly increased susceptibility. And we also saw this idea of a residual impact. So as I described before, we debriefed the survey respondents at the end. And even though they had just been informed that the information that they had received was false, they didn't revert all the way back to their prior opinion. So there was something left there on how it had influenced them. That's why fact checks, in addition to not being seen by the vast majority of the individuals who read the original content, they have less effectiveness for one reason, because we're now anchored on that belief that was presented first. To truly extract or to heal the individual of that false belief is a very difficult process. So if you wanted to mount a disinformation campaign, who, now that you've done the study, is the ideal target demographic? The most effective way to design an influence campaign is to identify those that perhaps are most impacted by confirmation bias. And those that are most impacted by confirmation bias are perhaps those that have an opinion that's most divergent from the mainstream opinion. We've seen fake news targeting within the anti-vax debate within the United States. If you are in the position of not believing in vaccination, you are generally going to believe that very, very strongly. One way to execute this is to enter in those communities and masquerade as an activist or a believer, gain the trust of individuals in that community, most likely by sharing information that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your long-term objectives. When you're in those communities, you're learning, you're gaining intelligence on who the influencers are, what their beliefs are, and you're building a reputation. The longer you can build that reputation, the more effective potentially the agent who's masquerading as a believer can be in launching an influence campaign when the time is right. In summary, I would say target communities online, so-called echo chambers online, that are very, very strong in their network, very, very strong in their belief, and you could potentially leverage confirmation bias to the greatest extent. In the political domain, it's important for them to target the undecided, to push them to the extremes and increase the political division, since one of the objectives of the Russians is to 
erode the credibility in, in, uh, in the benefits of democracy. So this undecided population is critical in that respect. Well, so let's talk about how we can take countermeasures. And one of the things that you said earlier is that once the information is out there, it's difficult to reverse. It just kind of lodges in your brain. In fact, you say that it would be most effective to obstruct fake news before it's spread. Tell us how that would work in reality. One of the uh, unfortunate advantages for the fake news purveyor is that they're first to market with fake news and they have a first mover advantage. So the idea of obstructing on the front end before the fake content is actually distributed has to be a component of an effective countermeasures regime. The best example I can think of is the last French presidential election in which the government has warned the population in general of that fake news were going to come from Russia, that they were going to try to interfere in the elections, and it worked. They issued a true statement before the fake news uh, happened, and the population responded. We characterize that version of what was done in the French election as pre-bunking. So you've heard of the phrase debunking, but pre-bunking is releasing information in anticipation of false information. So I think that that holds some level of promise. Part of the challenge there is identifying the false narrative that you think will most likely be produced. Another component of this I think that is necessary is the idea of an online reputation. And I think mating some type of scoring system associated with reputation with these other examples, pre-bunking as a professor mentioned, debunking or fact-checked on the back end, certain management on the online communities to really go after fake personas, which is another huge element of this problem. All of these working in concert, I think, can limit exposure to false information. It will not eliminate, in my opinion, it will be something that will be managed and not solved. And then finally, I would say that there's been a lot of talk around education beginning at a very young age for online users to be cognizant that there's false information and where they can find verifiable facts and information that's been peer-reviewed and withstood a certain level of academic scrutiny. What are the top two things I could be doing as an everyday person to inoculate myself from fake news? The first thing you can do is never rely on a single source for information. If you encounter information, you should look for other sources potentially to either validate or invalidate that information. And in a quick Google search, oftentimes you will find that the information is false. I would also say that you can revisit some of the things that appear to be particularly inflammatory later in the day or even the next day. Oftentimes, those that are attempting to provide you with high quality information or to refute false information have had time to do the appropriate research and find that information. The second thing is looking better at the source of information and where it is coming from. Do a little background research on the person who's sharing the information and the person potentially who authored the information. Because oftentimes you can't find a tremendous amount of information about this individual because perhaps that individual is not real. But also you'll find a history of statements and a history of information that they've either produced or spread that should give you some idea on whether 
this person always shares this type of information and never shares any information that is contrary to this. Now that we're in 2020 and the presidential election is upon us again, is the fake news today different than the fake news in 2016? And if so, in what way? I think that artificial intelligence is playing a greater and greater role in the fake news with deep fake videos and the like. And what I think might very well happen is a race between the artificial intelligence producers and those who recognize it ahead of time. Now, how will it occur this year? I, it's impossible to tell because there are too many factors that are now interacting on this scene. The role of AI is becoming more and more important in the domain of fake news. One thing that has changed is the recognition of bots. And this goes back to stubborn agents. This was the reason for the inclusion of stubborn agents in our model because they replicate this idea of a Twitter bot or a social bot. What we have seen is fake news purveyors recognizing that the platforms are starting to take action against these bot accounts. They're suspending them. They're removing them. And as a result, they've changed their tactics to sometimes pay individuals in the community, real individuals, to promote information, but not obviously state that they're being paid to do so. They're also purchasing accounts, people's accounts. So the background information is all legitimate. And I feel like with 2020 and beyond, AI, machine learning, is only going to help them be more effective at that particular type of targeting. I think you'll see more nuanced fake news where only one detail is slightly modified, but that detail is meaningful, but the rest of the content may be completely factual. And so that makes it even more difficult for fact checkers or for individuals that are trying to refute information that they believe to be false. I will address just briefly the construct of AI and deep fakes. There's a vast database of research that suggests that we believe video and audio more by a factor of many times what we believe in text and written word. So I think we could see more of that in 2020. The idea of creating completely fake video coupled with a nuanced approach to targeting and content creation. I think that in 2020, we're going to see not only fake news coming from outside, from Russia, etc., but also domestic fake news. And that becomes a very difficult problem to counter. But as uh, Travis said, getting a variety of sources of information, whether newspapers or TV channels or various uh, platforms, it's going to be very important. Indeed. So it is both going to be more complicated and potentially more hopeful. So that leads me to my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm hopeful of the ability and the ingenuity of just the global community to be able to look for ways to address this scourge and to limit its impact. Having been at Stanford the last three years, uh, I see firsthand how motivated that community is that have a strong belief in the importance of a free society and of a strong democracy. Their considerable efforts are going to lead to more effective countermeasures, more effective methods to provide better information to the masses. My hope is, of course, measured by the reality that is 
my belief that fake news is something that will exist in some form for the foreseeable future. We can limit its impact. We can educate our citizens. We can provide technology that limits the availability for exploitation of these online platforms, particularly my Stanford colleagues. Give me great hope. I'm hopeful and I look forward to their continued efforts in this space and those in other areas of academia, industry, and government that are very focused on trying to do what's right for the global population in this area. Okay, so let's say on the positive side, and I agree, of course, with everything Travis said. So I'm hopeful that people will realize better what's going on, the existence of fake news, and they will have a greater ability to recognize them. I also uh, think that improvements in technology will allow better detection of fake news. And in fact, my best positive uh, thought about it is that indeed, there will be a greater appreciation of the value of democracy out of all that. I hope so. That's well said, thank you. Thank you both very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations, Travis, on your dissertation. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be reminded that the intensity and prevalence of fake news really took off with the 2016 presidential election when Russia was actively interfering in our public discourse and successfully created an atmosphere of truth decay. As we get closer to election day this fall, we'll see even more disinformation, and this time also from domestic agents. The good news is that Travis and many others like him are actively combating the menace that is fake news and are dedicating to bolstering our democracy. We need to do our part in being responsible consumers of the news by relying on more than one source for information, seeking out truthful reporting, and debunking falsehoods whenever we encounter them. Also, if you're the kind of person who spends more than 10 hours online a day, take a break. Turns out, it helps you be less susceptible to falling for fake news. And remember, stand up for truth. It matters. Next week, our guest is Nancy Rosenblum. She's the Senator Joseph S. Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government at Harvard University and co-author of A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. We have something new today, which my co-author and I call conspiracism. And it's conspiracy without the theory. That is, it says the election is rigged. No evidence that the election is rigged, no evidence of fraudulent voters. There's no evidence and there's no arguments. It's a sheer, bald assertion of a conspiracy claim. So we have something really quite extraordinary, which is the assertion of the way things really are, that they're not as you think they are, but without reasoning in the way that we know how to reason. We talk about how conspiracism disorients our populace delegitimizes our democratic institutions and even our party system. And finally, that mainstreaming conspiracism has made it possible for the president to impose his reality on all of us. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com 
or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 